So that was Genesis chapter 41. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven ears of corn, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other ears of corn sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin ears of corn swallowed up the seven healthy full ears. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they had eaten, but even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dreams, I saw seven ears of corn, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other ears sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin ears of corn swallowed up the seven good ears. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears of corn are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years, and so are the seven worthless ears of corn, scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. 
The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked him, asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are, sub are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain round his neck. He made him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word no one will lift a hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and travelled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, a priest of Um. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. Thanks, Hannah, uh, for uh, reading all of that. Well done, if you're following along. If you've got a Bible open here in the building, or if you're tuning in at home, do keep, uh, do keep that open as we look through uh, this chapter together. Verse 46, did you notice that as we read it? Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh the king. Come a long way, haven't we? Back in chapter 37, we met him as a 17-year-old boy, sold into slavery. Thirteen years later, he's now entering this next stage of his life. Let me, let me lead us in a prayer as we come to God's Word. Father, it's, it's a privilege to have Your Word. It's a privilege to have Your Word read to us uh, well. And yet, even then, our listening is not always what it should be. And so, we do ask that You would graciously, by Your Spirit, help us to hear these words in the right way and respond with faith so we might draw close uh, to our kind Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, well, you know if you're a Christian, um, even, even as a Christian, life can feel a bit much at times. You can be worried about family. Uh, things feel uncertain about the future at times. It's slightly frightening. 
Or for those of you who are younger, maybe teenagers, pathfinders, grafties, you you head into school and and things are not always straightforward there. Maybe you've had conversations or at least thoughts when you come home and you you think, actually, when I go to church on Sunday, there's loads of Christians around. When I'm in school, there's not many Christians around. Uh, And life can feel a bit different. Maybe you've had the kind of thing where you you, you realize people just speak in a different way. They, They swear quite a lot. And you don't. And it's funny, here at church, you don't stand out, but at school, you do stand out if you don't swear. Maybe you've had friends that keep wanting you to, uh, and just to say no to that becomes hard. Uh, might be other things, those of you who are single. Uh, lots of things that are a blessing, even in singleness, but there's things that are difficult as well. There's just the added struggle at times, isn't there, that all your big decisions when you're single, you, you have to make by yourself. In a sense, there's no one else in there with you. There's friends. There might be parents, but it's not quite the same, and it's hard. Or it might be for some, the visits to the hospital are now a regular part of life. Even as a Christian, uh, life can feel a bit much at times. And back in uh, 1563, just before Steve, our vicar, was born, shortly before that, it still gets a laugh, doesn't it, even though it's outrageous. Just before, he, uh, yes, just before he was born. The Heidelberg, the Heidelberg Catechism was published for the first time. It was a kind of question and answer thing, and it was written to encourage Christians to, to teach them uh, about God. Question 27 was about God's providence. And providence is, is the, the doctrine that God provides for his people in all things. Uh, and it goes like this. There's a question, question 27 up on the screen. It's like this. What do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer that the young Christians were encouraged to learn went like this. It is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. There's mystery in those truths, isn't there? I get bad things and even those things, but It's wanting to get the alternative would be somehow we're out of God's control, and it's saying, no, in all things, in all things, God is still at work. Do you get that? If you you feel things have been hard recently this past year during lockdown, if you're a Christian, hear, hear this. Providence is God's fatherly hand holding your hand now, right now, in whatever situation you are in and always providing for you. When you walk into school, when you sit by a hospital bed, when you make decisions on your own and then you worry about whether you've got it right or not. C.S. Lewis, I guess all of us, probably all of us will have heard of, the author of the Narnia books. He wrote lots of other things as well, uh, but he's... He's well known for the Narnia books. He once got a a letter from a young girl asking her for some advice on writing, some tips on writing. And very graciously, he wrote back to her. And this was the advice he sent, or at least part of it. He, He said this, look, in writing, 
Don't use adjectives which merely tell us how you want us to feel about the thing you're describing. I mean, instead of telling us a thing was terrible, describe it so we'll be terrified. He goes on, don't, don't say it was delightful. Make us say delightful when we read the description. It's good advice, isn't it? Maybe you know good books written like that. You read something, you, you find yourself speaking back to the book as you just react to it. Uh, you keep that in mind because it's, as you think about these things, if the Bible only gave us definitions of things like providence, we might say, look, I get it. I sort of get it, but I don't really feel it. I don't really feel it as I walk into school and Big Barry is giving me a hard time. I don't really feel it there. So understand what God is giving us in this story of Joseph. He's given us someone whom he has led through a tough life so we can look at it, see it, see his providence at work, at least one thing, and then start to feel it. You remember the story, if you've been with us for the past few weeks as we've read through this story, this family, Abraham's descendants that, that God made promises to, to bless them and, and bless the whole world through them. And at this stage, as we've gone through this, they just seem a bit useless. They're hopeless. They're all over the place. Joseph, we met in chapter 37. He's the, he's the spoiled dreamer who is hated by his, his brothers. He's sold as a slave. And you, you think as you read the story, look, how, how on earth can God save the world? You can't even sort this family out. But we saw hints as we've gone through these past couple of weeks. Joseph's life's tough. But God does keep bringing lessons, uh, bringing blessings. Uh, last week, if you were with us in chapter 40, while Joseph's in prison, two of Pharaoh's staff, officials, displease him, and they, they end up in prison with him. Uh, the cupbearer and the baker. And they both have dreams. Joseph, who's kind of in a position of even though he's a prisoner, he's, he's been put in charge of running things. He is kind to these men who are put in prison, treats them really kindly. And God also enables him to interpret their dreams, that the cupbearers released. And you might think having been helped by Joseph, this is the time. It was the Hollywood film. This is the way out, isn't it? This is the way it's going to happen. Surely he'll remember Joseph and help him, but he doesn't. Joseph's forgotten. You feel, we saw this last week, you feel as you read the story of Joseph, he seems to be trying to live God's way, but nothing seems to work out. Which brings us to chapter 41 that we've read this morning, and we're told it's two years later, a further two years in prison. And this time, it's Pharaoh who's, who's had some dreams. We, Hannah read those for us. There's the seven fat cows, seven ugly cows, seven healthy uh, stalks of grain, seven thin. Uh, the ugly cows eat the fat cows. The thin stalks eat the healthy stalks. Weird, weird dream, isn't it? Weird dream, verses 1 to 7. Then he wakes up. Pharaoh's troubled. He thinks there's a, a warning in the dream of something bad that's going to happen. None of his advisors, that's what they would have done in those days, none of his advisors give him a satisfying answer. And you can imagine them all standing around in some ways thinking they're, gosh, if if only we knew someone with a track record on interpreting dreams. If only there was someone like that. And you wait a minute, verses 9 to 13, and then the penny drops for the cupbearer. Hang on. Hang on a minute. 
I know a guy. When, when I was in prison, I had a dream, and there was a young guy in there who in, interpreted it for me, and he got the meaning bang on. Uh, the story of Joseph has moved pretty slowly up into this point. Those of you in the building, there's some numbers up on the screen. You can see if you can uh, work them out. Uh, the story has moved slowly. Thirteen, there has been 13 slow years. You work that out, if you want to work it out in days, I think that comes in at 4,745 days through slavery and imprisonment, counting the hours, 113,880 hours. Count the minutes, 6,832,800, it should say, minutes. They've all gone past of his life. The, the story has moved slowly in slavery and in prison. The pace changes now. You have a look at verse 14, if you've got it there in front of you. It's kind of written a bit like this. Here's how the pace changes. We're, we're told Pharaoh sent for Joseph. He was quickly brought. He came before Pharaoh. In the language it was written in, it's kind of told in three words. It's really just summoned, rushed, came. It's all fast. You get a sense of the story. You can imagine it. Imagine what's going on. All those years in prison, his hair is a mess. His clothes are a mess. He's smelling like I don't know what. Perhaps Joseph's praying the kind of prayer he's prayed for the past 13 years. God, would you help me? Would you help me trust you? You know, I hope one day that you'll get me out of here, but it always feels like things just keep getting worse. And, and then before he's finished, it's like the door is thrown open, strong arms grab him, they pick him up, he, he's struggling, everyone's in a rush. They don't seem to have time to tell him what's going on, but he begins to fear the worst. He's heading towards a door, and it looks ominous. The, the door's thrown open, and he's thrown into a bath. You can imagine the confusion of it. What is going on? And then someone starts shaving him fixing his hair before they start getting into some designer clothes. His head's spinning as he comes blinking into an impressive room. There's armed guards. There's, there's all sorts of officials there, and there's an occupied throne at the end of the room. And then, and then Pharaoh speaks to him. That's verse 15. Just gone from verse 14 to 15. All that's happened. Are you Joseph? I heard you interpret dreams, and Joseph does. Pharaoh's right to be concerned because as Joseph interprets it, he says, look, seven years of plenty are going to be followed by seven years of famine. The famine will eat up all the plenty. And unless some serious plans are going to be made, it's going to be bad news for Egypt. I don't know if you noticed as we went through, but Joseph can't help slipping in a bit of information about God to Pharaoh as he goes through. Twice he says to him, God's revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verses 25 and 28, he says that he's giving Pharaoh a lesson. He, he's saying to Pharaoh, the king of the world, look, God's the real king, Pharaoh. He decides what's going to happen. God reveals his plans, Pharaoh. You better listen to him if you want to know what to do. And then as a little extra, verse 34, he gives Pharaoh the beginning of a plan to save Egypt. Everyone in the room seems to be in a mood for making quick decisions, so Pharaoh decides Joseph's the man for the job. In verse 42, if you look at that, he gives Joseph a signet ring. Now, that's a bit like 
that's really to do with authority. It's saying, like, if he's wearing this, whatever Joseph says, Pharaoh says, so you better do what he says. The weeks that followed, they, they must have been a bit of a spin for Joseph. He's, he's paraded through Egypt, verse 43. I guess that would be the equivalent in our day of a, of a press conference. He's being announced. He's the guy. And then there's a wedding. He's married off pretty quickly, and you understand the politics of that. It's kind of like, I suppose it'd be kind of like a, a kind of political celebrity wedding. It's like Barack and Michelle Obama. It's like Justin and Haley Bieber. It's like William and Kate. It's something like that. Wow, look at this couple. They're stunning. And it's to cement his place in Egyptian society. And then his work begins, and it's a success. Seven years of storing up the surplus food of Egypt, and during that time he starts a family, two sons, verse 51, Manasseh and Ephraim are born to him. And then the famine comes, verse 54, and the whole world, we're told by verse 57, the whole world comes to Joseph for food. He's become, this man, he's become just like that, the savior of the world. Isn't that incredible? Just like that. I mean, who could have predicted it? Well, there was someone. And he gave us the heads up back in chapter 37. You remember those dreams that Joseph had about himself, that one day he'd be a ruler in some way. God letting us know at that point in the story that he had a plan that all things, even Joseph's hardship, come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Let's pause there for a moment. And look, just take a second. You can chat to somebody sitting beside you. What do you feel about Joseph's story? And how do you think Joseph is feeling at this point? Just take a minute. Chat to somebody beside you if you'd like. How do you feel about the story? How do you think Joseph would be feeling at this point in the story? Take a minute just to chat with someone nearby. Okay, let me, let me draw you back. Um, in this story, in, in all sorts of ways, God is, God is unseen. He's, he's out of the picture. So with this idea, though, that he's still at work by his providence in all things, let, let, me, let me show you now just uh, three ways I think uh, that comes out as we, as we look at this story. Here's the first thing. God, by his providence, changing his people for good. We first met Joseph, didn't we? Back in chapter 37, he was telling lies and showing off. Now he's been through hard times, and notice what's happened to him. We saw it last week. In the chapters we read last week, he, he's a young man who has grown in, 
integrity. He's grown in kindness. But notice here in chapter 41, verse 16 of this chapter that we read, when Pharaoh says to him, look, can you interpret the dreams? Joseph's response, and it's quite a strong one, he says, I can't do it. I can't do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So here's a man who's grown in, in humility and in, in faith. He, he really does trust God. Those of you who are parents, let me speak to you for a moment. What, what is it you hope for your children? What are your ambitions for them? What do you want for them? Is it, is it for a life full of comfort and good things? Not wrong to want those kind of things, the, the good job, a, a family life. Is that the things you want? But would you want more than that? Would you ever dare to ask God for his providential training in their lives? J.C. Ryle, bishop, years and years ago, writing to parents about their children, said this, to pet and pamper and indulge your child as if this world was all they had to look to and this life the only season for happiness. To do this is not true love but cruelty. It is hiding from them the grand truth which they ought to be made to learn from the very infancy that the chief end of this life is the salvation of their souls. There's something more than this life. Don't just invest everything in this life and the stuff you can get here. There's something beyond that. Those of you who are teenagers, those of you who are younger, do you, you ever ask your parents, what is, you, what is it you pray for me? That'd be a good question to ask, wouldn't it? What is it you pray for me? It would be interesting to know. Here's a prayer you could pray. If you feel brave enough, if you're beginning to trust this God, before you go to bed tonight, you, you could pray a prayer like this. God, if it will help me grow in godly character, please would you take me even through hard times. If only you'll make me the person you want in Jesus. I wouldn't dare to make those kind of plans for you. I wouldn't dare to plan that kind of training. But there is someone who, by his providence, always changes people, his people, for their good. Look, here's the second thing. Um, God, by his providence, he, he gives the right thing at the right time. It is a remarkable story as you ponder it, think on it this week. In our small groups this week, we're going to be looking at this story as well. But it's remarkable. Joseph walks out of prison and into the, straight into the second top job in the whole of Egypt. I mean, how do you manage that? How, how do you manage to walk out of prison and into that job? I mean, nobody saw it happening, but, but God's providential care was at work in Joseph all the time with Potiphar. Remember back in Potiphar's house? A young man running someone else's house, organizing their food and their provisions. Even in prison, he kept using his gifts. Here's a person who through hardship has learned to apply his gifts for the good of others. And at the age of 30, when he walked out of prison, he'd become the person in character and gifts, prepared and able to provide the right thing at the right time. A perfect savior for famine-stricken Egypt. I mean, who could plan that? Well, only someone through whom all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. A few years back, I endeavored with our young boys to read through the whole of the Lord of the Rings. We managed it. At various points, the youngest was saying, uh, I don't really know what's going on here. 
I don't really understand this. But we kept going. We, we went through the journeys and the battles, if you know the, book, the, the Lord of the Rings, not just seeing the films. There were times in the story, there was one time in particular when a much-loved character falls into darkness. I'll not spoil it if you've not read it yet or seen the films. A much-loved character falls into darkness. And I could hear the little voice, there's a gulp. And then an anguished voice calls out, he's not gone, Daddy. He can't have gone. Tell me he's not gone. Being the kind of kind daddy I am, I said, I think he has. He has gone. <laughs> he's fallen. He's fallen into darkness. And then the silence when you're little and you just don't know what to say. And then later in the story, though, somehow, wonderfully, he comes back. And Sam Ganji, one of the characters towards the end of the book, says this, I thought you were dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? And Gandalf says, a great shadow has departed. Look, that's, again, made-up stories. It's wonderful. But you come back to this real story, and you feel it. Do you begin to feel it at all, what it says to you? Not just the information it gives you in the page, but how it appeals to your heart. Wouldn't you want to live in a world like this? Wouldn't you want to live in a world where your life is held by a God like this? A world where, because of sin, terrible things do happen, and yet there is a wise, rescuing love always at work, even providentially, in you and through you as you resist temptation at school, as you weep by hospital beds, as you make decisions on your own. Wouldn't you want to live in a world where someone is able, even if you make mistakes and get things wrong, where someone is able one day to bring it all together and you'll look at it and say, it's glorious. It's glorious. Genesis 41 says, that is the world you live in. God's world. You notice verses 32 and 33. It's hard to get your head around these things. Look, Joseph says to Pharaoh, in effect, in those verses, look, God has planned this. There, there is someone planning it, but that doesn't mean just sit back and do nothing. He says to, to Pharaoh, you, you need to act on this. In effect, you need to, to listen and trust. And he'd say the same to us. God's always at work. You won't always see it, but keep trusting him. Do what he says. I don't know the outcome of the next 13 years of your life. But you can trust this God. Ask him to grow you, even a bit like Joseph, in, in honesty, in humility, in kindness, with your gifts. Who knows in what ways he might use your gifts to bless the church family here. His blessing might come through you to them to, to bless other people. And look, here's the, here's the third thing. God, by his providence, he encourages us to, to trust Jesus. I think even through this story, Egypt was the, the superpower of the day. Pharaoh was in, in total command. It's almost a picture of how impressive the world looks at times, how, how impressive it can feel. We don't need God. 
We don't need anyone else. We can look after ourselves. And do you notice Egypt, this superpower of the day, in a single night, God shakes them to their foundation with a dream that comes and a warning. He warns of a coming devastation that could wipe them all out. And did you notice as well, the one who brings God's message that disaster is coming is also God's rescuer. And he's a bit of a nobody. It's pretty humbling. Egypt are given a savior in the form of a Hebrew nobody. Joseph given up for dead, yet God raised him up. And he made him the savior for anyone who'd come to him. Remind you of anyone? A Hebrew nobody that God raises up to make a savior. The New Testament will speak of Jesus this way. Though he was a son he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Genesis 41, God gave Egypt the savior they needed. Joseph, Joseph, through what he suffered, God used even that to make him into the perfect kind of savior for Egypt. We've been shaken by covid we will be shaken by lots of other things. And one day, there'll be all sorts of things that frighten us. One day, we'll face the end of this life. And on that day, I'll need something more than a Joseph. I'll need someone who's been made a perfect savior for more than just famines or COVIDs or anything else. And the Bible says, and what Joseph is pointing towards, Jesus, through what he suffered on the cross, that he paid the price for our sin. God has made him greater than Joseph. He's made him a perfect savior for you and me to deal with our sin. And he is, like the story of Joseph, the whole world comes to Joseph for food. God has made this Jesus the one who is perfect for the whole world to come to, to be saved. He's able to bring you into God's family save you for heaven. Who could have seen that coming? Who could have planned it, worked out all those details? But God has. He's promised it, and he's worked it, and he continues to work. What does this all mean for us, to know a God like this, who makes plans like this, who's able to work all things together? Question 28 in the Heidelberg. Uh, Bird Catechism asked this follow-on question. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? And here's the answer it gives. We can be patient. We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future in this life and on into the next life, and for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. The one who saved you in Jesus is your heavenly Father. He loves you. And he is at work in all things. If you want a question to chat about, I've tried to give a little question um, each week. You, you could chat about this. Have you, have you seen any ways God has helped you grow as a Christian, even through difficult times? 
might be a good question to chat together. Those of you who are younger Christians, might be a good question to ask if you know friends or family who are older Christians, how that's worked out in their life.